Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian. I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are discussing Rosemary's Baby from 1968, directed and written by Roman Polanski, based on the 1967 novel of the same name by Ira Levin, starring Mia Farrow, John Cassavetes, Ruth Gordon, and Sidney Blackmer. In this film, a pregnant woman becomes increasingly concerned that there may be a plot against her and her baby. If you're new to the show, we're going to talk spoiler-free about this movie for the first 15 or 20 minutes, but after that, just background info, but then after that, we're going to play some transition music and switch into spoiler mode. So once you hear that transition music, you should go watch this movie on Amazon Prime if you haven't seen it yet. It is a classic uh, before we get into it, Patreon shoutouts. We'd like to thank Nick P, Mike B, Tim U, Troy L, Emily C, Kyle S, James R, Sheila B, Megan T, and Katerina G. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. If you're not a patron, there are a couple of videos out there that we've posted. We have quite a few bonus episodes now, and we're going to record a Another bonus episode after this on the menu, which I'm not sure which th- when that'll come out, but you can go to horrormovieclub.com and click on the big orange Patreon button to become a subscriber for a dollar a month. Ashwin, had it been a while since you'd seen Rosemary's Baby? Uh, yeah, it really weird. Uh, like I, this is one that I think I've uh, seen before, and I've always kind of just thought I'd seen this, but uh, yeah, watching it. It just felt like a first watch to me. Maybe. maybe it's just been like that long or maybe I hadn't seen the whole thing and I just remembered like certain parts, but felt felt like a first watch very much. So it must have been a long time. Uh, how about you? Yeah, I can't even remember the last time I saw it. I know I've seen it before at least once. So, But it, a similar experience in that I didn't remember much. I remembered the movie, but I didn't remember my feelings on it other than I thought it was really good. So it was yeah. interesting to analyze it a bit more this time interesting your feelings uh were i i feel like i mean i i didn't have like too high of opinions about it or maybe like the first time i saw it i, I just thought it was like very slow and boring but you remember like liking this movie quite a bit i remembered liking it yes okay cool yeah i think there's some concepts in here which uh, i probably didn't get last time i saw this which this time hit me a little bit more i know that i saw it long long enough ago that i was much less sharp of a movie viewer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> movie viewer and like as a general person. I, I feel right. Like I'm less sharp of a person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's surprising how much is in here. Yeah, for sure. Um, we will maybe should have a bit of a discussion if you're up to it on separating the art from the artist on this episode. Yeah. Uh, I know many of us have different views on that debate, so Maybe we'll get it out of the way now and mention that Roman Polanski, the director of this film, raped a 13-year-old girl in 1977 and fled the country before he could be formally sentenced. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were multiple charges, He, you know, charges of sodomy and drugging her, etc. He eventually, I think, pled guilty to having sex with an underage minor. He always said she was willing, but... Mm-hmm. 13 years old. Um, yeah. And yeah, then he became a fugitive from justice and uh, spent most of his life in France. I think he's still there in France, uh, a fugitive from justice. I think. <laughs> I don't think he's allowed back in the country. He's, he's not. Arrested, I mean, right? there was an opportunity that the U.S. had to arrest him. He was briefly arrested in Switzerland in 2009 and held briefly and put on house arrest, but 
It sounds like the U.S. didn't provide the necessary documentation to extradite him. Hmm. I could have spent hours reading about I this, know. but I kind of <laughs> had to. There's so much about this movie that I could have, I feel like I could have spent months. I mean, you could teach classes and host an entire podcast about this movie and all the stuff surrounding it and the people mm. involved. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I like He was a name that I feel like uh, I was aware of and knew like he was in some trouble for some stuff. But yeah, when he starts to get into it. Uh, I didn't realize he's like still a fugitive apparently and uh, even when he starts to look at the details of the case there's like all these layers to it there have been like all these uh, documentaries about it it's just yeah it's it's a, it's a the whole saga it's wild it's a whole saga uh, yeah it, it's so wild there's so many sagas connected to the people in this movie but mm-hmm. uh, bef- we'll get go down some of those uh, tangents but before we get too deep into that kind of stuff, what do you think? Like, do you, will what a director has done or his reputation prevent you from watching a movie? Or is it kind of a one-off thing where you, depending on the movie and the situation? Uh, yeah, I mean, generally, and, and I feel like that's coming up more and more, uh, even in music these days with like Kanye and Michael Jackson and stuff. Uh, you, you have these people who are viewed uh, who like, yeah, we'll, we'll do really shitty things. And there's probably a lot of stuff that we love today that uh, the people behind them have done shitty things that we're going to find out about. Uh, so I, I, I just think it's it's a really tough exercise. And then it also diminishes like the hundreds of people that are sitting behind each of these people. So to say like this film is all this Roman guy, uh, then we're, we're yeah, doing it injustice to like the, the cast, uh, everyone else involved. Uh, so yeah, generally I try to look past like the one person and view the art on its own. How about you? Yeah, I'm kind of of a similar opinion, like that movies are a collective effort and it's just a shame to not watch somebody's great performance that they slaved over or the hard work the cast and crew put in behind the scenes and to have that movie not see the light of day or be shunned by society because the director turns out to be an asshole. Yeah. Um, Which so many people probably had to endure working with. (laughs) I don't know about (laughs) Roman Polanski and how he was on set, but I'm sure a lot of people are like, well, fuck, I had to work with this asshole for X amount of months and now no one's even going to see the movie. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Uh, So yeah, but at the same time, it will make me a little less excited to check out something like the Jeepers Creepers franchise. I'm pretty sure that director... Mm -hmm. I shouldn't tell tales out of school because I haven't researched this recently, but... I think he's got some horrible stuff in his very fairly recent past. And, you know, he's still actively making movies and getting the money from those movies. So it's like, oh, are you, uh. how do you differentiate uh, that from this guy, though? Right. I mean, I think one of the differentiators here that makes the pill a little less difficult to swallow is that Rosemary's Baby is just such a classic. Mm. And just, just like Jeeves Creepers. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we've talked about this before. Uh, yeah, I think we did yeah. have this discussion before. So weird. Yeah. I, I feel like Rosemary's Baby was established as a classic of horror cinema before he even committed this crime. Yeah. And it's become, I knew about Rosemary's Baby and how big of a horror movie it was before I ever knew anything about what Roman Polanski had done. So mm-hmm. it just makes it a little bit more easy to separate the two in my mind. That's interesting. You're almost like saying the quality of the art or like the legacy of it might outweigh or like the timing of when it happened kind of outweighs like the action of a person versus Jeepers Creepers, not like that great of a movie. And he did it more 
recently, and that's why we we can rule them out. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Exactly. So then it isn't like a true separation of uh, person and art. It sounds like there there's some relation for you between like when they did it and how good the art was. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I don't know <laughs> that I have a really clean logic where I'll watch anything. I don't care who made it and what they did. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, maybe like there's a whole our society has a system, <laughs> like a legal system for those things. <laughs> yeah. And then you can get into a whole like, well, does that person, there's nothing in the law that says they can no longer have Make profitable movies. work or own yeah. a business or, you know, get paid from the result of their work. So right. then it gets kind of dicey. But at the same time, I'm a person who likes to support businesses I believe in. So it's, it's weird. Yeah. I think it's a one-off thing for me just because of all those sure. extenuating so, circumstances. So not a universal rule for you. It's more like a situation by situation that you're I think making so. the call. I think okay. generally I can separate the art from the artist, but I think it has to be situational. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like when it becomes situational or it's a one-off thing, then it opens up to more uh, scrutiny. Whereas if you just say, okay, I'm going to separate it no matter what, then it's not like if the movie makes this much money or it gets like this much praise, then it's okay to be uh, a terrible asshole or a person. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. It seems like a slippery slope. Right, for sure. And then on the other hand, it's such a personal thing. So like it doesn't matter really <laughs> what if I'm on my own slippery slope, it's kind of up to me. And it's That's up true. to all you viewers. So if yeah, you guys exactly. are like, fuck, I can't believe Ashvin and... Brian are covering this movie. I get it. Yeah. And then if you're on the spectrum of like, I can't believe they're even having this discussion. I kind of get that too, but I think it at least yeah. bears mentioning. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely worth mentioning. Um, oh, what was going to, oh, and uh, yeah, to, to your point, he is still making movies. Uh, like I had no idea, like he did the pianist, like back in like the two thousands and stuff. So he's still out there making movies, working, uh, just avoiding the U S I guess. Right, yeah, and I'm presumably getting money from us watching Rosemary's Baby on Prime. Mm, yeah, yeah, interesting. I don't know how those deals work. Maybe he doesn't get money based on views, but certainly yeah. gets money for it being out there. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. You're you're uh, contributing to him. Right, right. You're contributing to his lifestyle, but then at the yeah. same time, I'm sure he's pretty well established at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, and especially, yeah, this is a free watch, right? It's included with Prime? Yes, right. Yep, okay. Yeah, it's interesting. But then there's a whole other drama with him in that his fiance was Sharon Tate, who was pregnant with his child, murdered in the Manson family murders while he was away out That's of town. Wild. Yeah, that was, uh, that was the same year this movie came out, I think like 1968. Uh, I want to say it was 69, but oh, okay. you, are you sure it was 68? You might have the, you never sound uh, quite sure. So you let me weasel <laughs> in my thoughts, but you might have the date right in front of you. No, no, I, I don't. But, uh, yeah, I was right around this movie. I think they were only married for like a year and then, uh, she died, which is wild. Yeah. Yeah. I think okay. they were just engaged, right? Oh, okay. Got it. I believe. Mm. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. And she was expecting and then, yeah, the whole Charlie. Damn. Yeah, pretty crazy. And his parents were killed in the Holocaust, and he barely escaped. So his wow. life has been kind of marked by drama and tragedy and sadness, some of it of his own doing, but mm -hmm. pretty wild. Um, yeah. 
Crazy. Also, some weird drama around Mia Farrow, which I don't know if we bother we can bother getting into that or not. But the Frank Sinatra stuff, or something else. Yeah, there's Frank Sinatra stuff. Like he divorced her via. He had a lawyer serve her divorce papers on, on the set of the film in front yeah. of all her coworkers. Yeah. And then she married Woody Allen for quite some time and oh, accused right. him of molesting her adopted daughter. Who then he married? He then later married her. Ah, oh, man. And then one of her kids said, you know, she made that up and she's the abusive one. Wow. There's just so much wacky stuff going on around the people in this movie. Damn, this movie does have a legacy. It's wild. <laughs> yeah, strange. I mean, it's, and we're even, I feel like all we're talking about right now is gossipy type stuff. But Yeah. Um, we'll get more into the movie making stuff and, and veer away from all this. Uh, this was Polanski's first U.S. film, uh, but before this he did Repulsion in 1965, Chinatown afterwards in 1974, The Tenet in 76, The Ninth Gate in 1999, The Pianist in 2002, just to name a few of his movies. I had mm. no idea The Ninth Gate was him. Me neither. I always thought that was just some like cheesy uh, horror film. Right? Yeah, it's crazy. Isn't it funny how... All these, we've talked before in our The Omen episode and The Exorcist episode, this wave of satanic movies in the late 60s, early 70s, and they were all based off novels. This was based off an Ira Levin novel. Yeah, that came out like the year before. Uh, It's crazy how quickly they turned this into a film. Yeah, I think they bought the rights before the film was even published. Or the book was even published. The book was even published, excuse me, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's impressive. There's a quote from Ira Levin in 2002 where he said, I feel guilty that Rosemary's baby led to the exorcist and the omen. A whole generation has been exposed and has more belief in Satan. Because of, he thinks because of this one? I think so, yeah. Interesting. You've brought up, I think, in other episodes that like around this time, witchcraft, is it witchcraft was on the rise? Or um, there was some kind of push for like, uh, yeah, dark arts? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Something yeah, this, this, this that's what's going on in the parallel Harry Potter universe at <laughs> yeah, this time. Right. But yeah, the 60s saw a rise in a little bit of paganism along with the hippie movement and a decline in religiousness. Uh, I think in our Omen episode, we mentioned the fact that religiousness in the U.S. really declined between 1958 and 1979. Hmm. Uh, Anthony Anton LaVey, excuse me, created the Church of Satan in 1966. The Satanic Bible was published in 69. Hmm. Oh, Manson murders did happen in 69 as well. So okay. there was a bit of a wave of this in pop culture as well. I don't know if some of it was a pushback to the free love movement of the 60s. She's also in a scene in the movie... In the hospital, the doctor's waiting room picks up a Time magazine issue with the cover that reads, "Is God dead?" Right. Uh, which was a real 1966 cover of Time magazine, but I think in reality the article was a bit more nuanced, like a study of theology, and not like, "Hey, mm-hmm. is nobody religious anymore?" Right. But yeah, that, that wasn't that's... the way people interpreted the article who didn't read it. Oh, okay, got it. Uh, yeah, that, I think that's a really fascinating period of uh, U.S. history. That like they yeah, had the decline of religion, and uh, yeah. yeah, and I don't know. I mean, and then within the article, it still says that ninety-seven percent of people believe in the U.S. believe in God. Mm-hmm. I think that decline was like church attendance, and okay, uh, I can't remember what that 
decline study was looking at as far as metrics go. But yeah, it's weird to analyze it from here because it seems like that if you're looking at culture from that time that things were loosening up. But mm-hmm. yeah, compared okay, so to now, it's hard to say. Yeah, how does that ninety-seven percent even compare to now? It's got to be much lower now, right? I saw in a 2014 survey, I believe it was like 68% or something like wow. that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. 30% uh, decline. I would guess it's even lower now. Right, right. Okay. Uh, yeah, cool Cool to see that aspect represented in some of these films. Yeah. You, you don't see sure. that too much these days. No. I mean, religious horror has kind of, it seems like it's gone by the wayside a little bit. The Conjuring universe dabbles in it. Yeah, it does, right? But but again, like uh, a lot of that takes place in in the seventies, right, or eighties. Yeah, well, movies. and there's like Hereditary and um, yeah, uh, the, some of the A twenty four stuffs kind of bring that back. I mean, are, are you saying all witchcraft films are religious horror? I mean, like this is like specific, like about like God and and the devil. Whereas like I feel like modern stuff that deals with witches uh, isn't so much about like the the God or devil angle anymore. It's maybe more like culty or yeah, like how often is Satan brought up anymore? Hmm. I feel like in heredity. I mean, Satan. I almost feel like you're getting too technical if it's got to be Satan himself. Like, Payman yeah. is a demon. It, it oh yeah, deals with demons. It's not as explicit. Like this movie has a lot about Catholicism and Christianity. I think The Exorcist and The Omen both showed a little bit more the side of religiousness as the side of good versus the evil, whereas mm-hmm. a movie like Hereditary is more focused on evil, evil, the occult stuff. So I yeah. guess I see what you're saying. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, it doesn't, I, mean, I think movies that focus more on the balance between the two are kind of falling by the wayside. I do think The Conjuring Universe dabbles in it. Yeah, and I think that's like one of its weaknesses is like you feel like you're getting <laughs> yeah. hit over the head with the Warrens and like their adherence to a certain uh, religion. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, so this movie has a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes and 87% from users. It's heralded as one of the uh, classics of horror cinema. It's in the National Film Registry. It had a budget of $3.2 million and a box office of $33.4 million. And there's a bit of a franchise, I suppose. There was a made-for-TV sequel in 1976 called Look What's Happened to Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> yep. There was a 2014 miniseries titled Rosemary's Baby on NBC in which Zoe Saldana played Rosemary. There was a short in the anthology film XX called Her Only Living Son, which was an unofficial sequel to Rosemary's Baby. Never knew that. And there is a secret prequel in post-production called Apartment 7A, produced by Platinum Dunes and John Krasinski. Uh, It's about Terry, the girl who dies towards the beginning of this movie. And it's directed by Natalie Erica James, who directed 2020's The Relic. No, just Relic. Oh, Relic. Okay. Um, Were you able to find any details on when that film is expected to come out? No, I don't think there's much. It's still in post-production, so usually they don't really... Hmm. release any details about when it's expected to come out until that's wrapped, I think. Okay. So, it, yeah. yeah, wild. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to see that. It, it is really interesting, the lack of uh, sequels this one has had compared to, like, those other ones you mentioned, like The Omen and The Exorcist. Like, I feel like those of how many, like, parts have you seen and remakes of those have you seen compared to this one? Uh, it, yeah, it just feels, like, pretty light. Yeah, it is actually pretty light. And that, Ira Levin wrote a sequel 
30 years later, a 1997 novel called Son of Rosemary. Interesting. Um, but yeah, it's it's lighter than some of those other ones. I think there's okay. like four or five Omen movies and yeah. same with The Exorcist. Yep. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, the, the overlap between this story and the Omen uh, seems like a lot. Uh, less less so the Exorcist. I mean, I, I feel like that's more like a, on its own. But um, is, isn't like the Omen directly like a, a play off of this? It is very similar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't know how much to say without spoiling. I feel like people can assume <laughs> from the title of the movie <laughs> yeah. kind of what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Mia Farrow is the star of this film. She plays Rosemary. Uh, and after her success in this, she went on to star in many films in the 70s, including The Great Gatsby and Death on the Nile. She also, um, she was in the Omen remake as Miss Miss Blaylock. Oh, cool. The 2006 one. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was briefly married to Frank Sinatra, as we mentioned. He divorced her on set, essentially. Um, Ruth Gordon who plays Minnie Castavet, the neighbor of Rosemary, uh, won an Oscar for her portrayal as Minnie for this movie. And Polanski was also nominated for an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. So this movie was widely acclaimed and respected, not just within horror circles. I don't even know if horror circles existed the way they do now in 1968. (laughs) Yeah. Were you surprised that uh, Mia wasn't nominated for anything? I was. Um, I think, did she get some nominations with like other award circuits that she didn't have anything for the Oscars, but yeah, I do think her performance was respected. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. British Academy Film Awards. uh, She was nominated there. Right. Um, Yeah. Uh, Produced by William Castle, who directed and produced House on Haunted Hill from 1959 and 13 Ghosts from 1960, as well as many other kind of gimmicky horror movies we covered house on haunted hill in 2018 for our like first episode Mm -hmm. uh anything else background wise uh i i read that the original script uh was like over four hours long so they pared this down quite a bit um but no i think you hit everything else yeah you had everything else that i had yeah yeah, I mean, there's there's more you could dig into, and we could go on and on, but I think it's time to, to flip over to the bottom half of the show, but uh, I'm going to hit the Ohio connection first. Our friend Alex connects every movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. Alex owns the Jukebox Bar in Cleveland, Ohio. Great food, great drinks. Stop on by for some pierogies or drinks, and Alex says, Rosemary's Baby is a psychological horror film written and directed by Roman Polanski. The film follows Rosemary, a young wife living in Manhattan, who comes to suspect that her elderly neighbors are members of a satanic cult. The film's supporting cast includes John Cassavetes, Sidney Blackmer, Charles Grodin, and character actress Marianne Marianne Gordon as one of Rosemary's girlfriends. Not to be confused with fellow supporting actress Ruth Gordon, Marianne Gordon was mostly a bit player throughout her career with her most notable role as a principal character on TV's Hee Haw, Gordon's personal life was intriguing, with her first husband being then-Playboy producer Michael Trickolis, and her second husband was renowned country artist Kenny Rogers. Michael Trickolis was born in Youngstown, Ohio. Oh, that's cool. Is, is He's a famous dude? I have no idea who that is. He <laughs> was a, a then-Playboy producer. Oh, okay, okay, cool. <laughs> nice, good connection. Yeah, he, he made it. Yeah, good for uh, him. <laughs> 
<clears throat> All right, man. Well, let's let's keep going. We're going to review the plot in detail and spoil this movie and then review it. Before we do this, though, do you uh, mind holding on? I don't know, maybe like 15 minutes or so. I just want to take like a quick power nap. I'm exhausted and I just shut my eyes real quick. It'll give me the energy to keep going. Uh, yeah, sure. Sounds good. All right, man. I'll be right back. All right. Hey man, all right, I'm back. Feeling pretty refreshed. Feeling pretty good. Pretty cool. good. I got these uh really wicked fingernail scratches all over my body though. I, d- I don't really know what happened while I was asleep there. Oh man, yeah. Hope hope it's nothing serious. I'm sure it's totally fine. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> pretty I'm, normal thing to wake up with. I'm sure in nine months it will continue to be fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're in good shape. All right, so this film opens with Rosemary Woodhouse and her husband, Guy, looking at an apartment and deciding to rent it, despite some warnings from their friend and current landlord, Hutch, about the building's past. He warns them that the building they're moving into, called the Bramford, used to be known as Black Bramford. They were sisters who lived there at the turn of the century that used to eat kids, a guy who was into witchcraft who said he'd successfully conjured a devil, and a decade or so ago, a dead infant was found wrapped in newspaper in the basement. Sounds I also like notice. A, oh, oh sounds like New York, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like everyday living. <laughs> uh, so they also notice some odd things while the real estate agent is showing them the apartment. So a bureau has been moved in front of a closet door, and a journal entry is seen by Rosemary that says, I can no longer associate with, and then it trails off before the sentence is finished. So we're getting some clues that this may not be a great place to move into. Nevertheless, Rosemary and Guy proceed, and after moving in, Rosemary befriends a young woman named Terry who lives with their neighbors, the Castavets. She is a recovering drug addict, and the older couple took her in. So she shows Rosemary a necklace with a charm that contains tannis root that the Castavets gave to her. But one night, as Guy and Rosemary are coming home from a night out, they stumble upon a police crime scene and discover that Terry has killed herself by leaping from the Castavets' apartment. Later on, the Woodhouses reluctantly agree to go over to the Castavets' apartment for dinner, and they agree this will only be a one-time thing as they don't want the obligation of a friendship with nosy neighbors. But Guy takes an interest in the couple, especially the husband, Roman, and eventually becomes close with them. Rosemary is kind of along for the ride in this relationship with the Castavets, and Minnie gives her the charm necklace that used to belong to Terry. Rosemary finds this odd, but doesn't mention anything to Minnie about it. Uh, And there's some interesting and foreboding elements about this budding relationship that are sprinkled in that I'll touch upon. But what did you think about this kind of opening moments of the movie, first act, if you will? Uh, I liked it. I think we've hit on this uh, with other older films that like the pacing sometimes feels just a little more natural and less uh, 
condensed or compressed. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I feel like the pace that this is moving at, the natural dialogue that you're seeing between um, the two main characters, Rosemary and Guy, uh, just like it really pulls you into their relationship. And I, yeah, I found Rosemary to be like pretty infectious, like her personality and just how like how excited she is to be moving into this place. Um, and then, yeah, I thought the neighbors are really well cast. Uh, I thought that uh, friend is like a great like harbinger for like, you know, they had all this stuff has happened, like beware. Um, I couldn't understand why she was uh, suspicious, though, of the elderly neighbors who just seemed like pretty friendly and nice, whereas like guy was like totally into them. Uh, did that make sense to you? I don't think she was suspicious of them right off the bat. I just think she was like, we talked about guy was really the one who was like, oh, I don't want to go over there. Yeah. Get into a whole relationship with them. And so she was like, okay, I promise you, this will be a one and only one time thing. Then he was all into it. And she was kind of like, uh, I, I think she just found <laughs> yeah. them kind of annoying. She did. Okay. Okay. That, that makes sense. I mean, uh, Minnie is pretty a stereotypical, nosy, annoying neighbor. Neighbor. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, also thought the the effects on uh, the girl who uh, kills herself jumps off Terry. Is that her name? Terry. Yep. Yeah, I thought the the gore there was uh, pretty good as well. But yeah, what what did you think? This is not a bloody gory movie, but man, there was blood everywhere where yeah. she committed uh, or died by suicide, and you could tell she had kind of like bounced off a vehicle and then onto the ground. It was a pretty grisly scene. Yeah, yeah, it was. You could, yeah, it kind of comes out of nowhere too. Right. Uh, so there were some foreboding things. I didn't even know if I understood all of them, hmm. but they they share a toast with the cast of Eds, and Roman spills some of the toast on the floor. It seemed right. intentional, and the camera briefly lingered on it. Do you have anything to make of that? Uh, I feel like that comes into play later when... Uh, oh, there's another scene, right, where... So, something very similar happens. Something spills on the floor, and she's cleaning up after it. Oh, hmm. Uh, oh, shoot. I don't know when, if I remember that. Yeah, it might be like in the final scene when she comes into their apartment. I feel like something later spills on the floor, and we see like a similar behavior. But what what did you make of it? Okay, I, yeah, I just thought maybe it was some sort of like sacrifice or part of a ritual. They also made a point of showing that there was some tile that had been, like, ripped up in the floor of the hallway in the building. So there was, like, a hole in the floor there. So I didn't know if there was something going on with the floor. And hmm. I don't know. I have no idea what to read into it. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So uh, your alarm uh, bells were ringing then based on, a like, some of these? A little bit, yeah. 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 And okay. then, like, Roman knows an awful lot about Guy's career, even though he's just, like, a random stage actor of middling success. <laughs> yeah. That was really surprising, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he goes off about how much he dislikes the Pope and organized religion. Yeah. Before they even went over there, they heard some weird Latin chanting from the Castavet's apartment one night. Yep. They also weren't very broken up about Terry's suicide when they came across the scene. They were so casual about it, right? They were very casual for... <laughs> Even yeah. if you had stumbled upon the suicide of a person you didn't know, let alone someone who was staying with you. Right, right. Yeah, that, 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 uh, I couldn't tell if that was like bad acting, but I, I think it kind of makes sense uh, later in the film, though I'm still not sure I understand exactly what happened there. Uh, so, yeah, interested to hear, hear your thoughts. Um, but I, I don't know, like so far, uh, to, yeah, to, to me, I, I think I missed all of those uh, like signs. Like, I don't, I don't know if they're like intentionally supposed to be like foreboding or just like weird quirks that your neighbors have. 
And then Rosemary, all she also mentioned after their meeting to a guy that she could tell the Kasovitz had recently taken down a lot of their pictures. Oh, right, right, yeah. So, and that kind of comes into play later. Sure. One thing, there's a couple times in this movie where I feel like we're given some hints or like in jokes almost. I couldn't tell if I was just reading into it too much or not, but we mentioned how a guy was like, I really don't want to get into this relationship with the neighbors and... Rosemary says, we'll make it clear that it will be just this once and not the beginning of anything. Mm-hmm. And then there is like an L cut. Wait, is it an L cut or a J cut? I think it's a J cut. Sorry. Technical. <laughs> a J cut is when you can hear the audio of the next scene before you can see it. Oh, sure. Yep. So after she says, like, we'll make it clear that it's just this once and not the beginning of anything, we hear Minnie's voice going like, ah, like oh. almost like she's <laughs> cackling at this, the mere mention of this phrase, like, yeah, fucking right. Yeah, it's just going to be one time thing. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But it transitions sure. into her opening the door and welcoming them, welcoming them into the apartment. So it's more like a, ah, come on in. Yeah, I got But it. in that scene, it kind of sounds like a, ah, <laughs> like. Laughing at that idea. Yeah. I don't know if that was intentional or just me like looking too hard for clues. Oh, okay. Yeah, good, good, good. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you picked up on something there. There's another very similar J cut that later happens later. Yeah. Okay. Um, Anyway, eventually, Guy gets a call and learns that the actor who got a part that he really wanted uh, randomly went blind. So, Guy gets the part, which jumpstarts his career. And Rosemary hints to her friend Hutch that Guy is starting to get so focused on his career that he has no time for her. But one day he suddenly flips and says he's been a creep and he wants to have a baby. On their romantic baby-making night, Minnie the neighbor shows up at their door with a chocolate mousse dessert that she's made for both of them. Rosemary complains to Guy that hers has a chalky undertaste, but he goes her into eating it anyway. She eats a bit but ditches the rest when Guy isn't looking. And shortly after eating it, she gets dizzy and falls unconscious. She has a dream that Guy is undressing her, and then he's having sex with her while uh, they're surrounded by the Kastovets and all their friends completely naked, which is very hereditary-esque, right? Uh, It was, yeah, yeah. And uh, what I loved here was, like, the silence. Like, uh, this is, like, supposed to be kind of a, I I don't know, like, it's very ominous, right, As, as you're watching this. But uh, it's just, like, so quiet almost, and, like, you're hearing, like, every sound everyone's making. Uh, so, yeah, the way this dream sequence was shot is just, like, pretty disturbing. That's a good point. The sound design is really cool. And she had had a dream earlier. She had mentioned, too, in their meeting when he's ranting about the Pope, Roman Castavet, that she grew up Catholic but doesn't know now. And I think that night she has a dream mm-hmm. about her time it's kind the of church. like a a dream about something that happened at school with the nuns or something like that. Yeah. And right. the way that dream sequence is done is just so incredible. It's not like your stereotypical movie dream sequence. She just looks up in bed right? and above her are all the nuns and everything. It's really seamlessly done. It is. Yep. And again, a lot of silence. It's just very uncanny. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Cause, uh, it, yeah, it's not like, uh, it doesn't feel like very formulaic or like in your face. It's uh, it's just like a very like odd sensation uh, watching that. Yeah, it's unsettling. Yep. In the right ways. Yep. Um, so let's see. Yeah, so Guy is having sex with her and then turns into like some sort of demon or something. 
Uh, she's surrounded by the cast of Vets and their naked friends. And she screams out, this is no dream. This is really happening. And Guy's concerned. It mentions his concern to Minnie that she can see what's going on. But Minnie uh, assuages him by saying, look, if she ate the moose, she can't see anything. Mm. Uh, now shut up and do your Latin chanting or singing. Mm-hmm. And the next morning she wakes up with claw marks on her skin and Guy says he didn't want to miss baby night and he's already cut his nails, <laughs> implying that he had sex with her after she passed out. Uh, seemingly rough sex at that, which is disturbing in its own right. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting because uh, he, we know like he's an actor too, so uh, his ability to like sell uh this like stuff it's like pretty convincing yeah right i mean it's a not to use the term that's uh i know has been shit on by bodies 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 but it's the a movie about gaslighting really I mean, <laughs> yeah that's actually yeah, exactly <laughs> You're he's, crazy. yeah he's totally yeah. playing the part and do you think that he had been giving her the cold shoulder and focusing on his career so hard because the coven needed him to ensure that this the baby making night happened on a very specific night on the calendar. Uh oh, interesting. Um and like p- planning for like him to that night suddenly like warm up to her and like uh plan this thing. Yeah, like this is going to be the night that that you do it. I'm going to bring over the moose like yeah. Everything I think was very coordinated. Possibly, possibly, but I feel like as a viewer, and like, yeah, again, like this felt like my first time watching this. Um, like, I mean, how convinced were you at this point that, yeah, the, the like what she dreamed, like actually what she dreamt actually happened, um, that like uh, this all like was real versus in her head? I mean, it's hard to say because I know the plot of this movie, but yeah. It is, not only is it a demonic horror movie or religious horror movie, but it's a psychological horror movie because Rosemary is really going through it. Right. And yeah, if it's your first time watching, maybe you don't know. Maybe you're going through it with her and being like, is she just imagining everything? Right. Is this something from her Catholic upbringing? She's dreaming about it. Is she processing something? Right. Uh, Is this a comment on like childbearing and like what a, a person goes through when they're uh, getting ready to have a child potentially or how sure. they view it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I think my, my experience watching this film was like to keep both of those uh, scenarios in mind. And I thought the movie did a good job of like uh, balancing both of those. And so for this scene, yeah, if we assume that what happened in her dream actually happened in real life, then yeah, I, 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 I think you're right. Like this is all like very purposeful in terms of like him and like knowing her calendar schedule because i think she tells uh the neighbor in an earlier scene like oh today's the first day of my period right do, do you I remember think, uh, yeah she does yeah so uh yeah they, they would know now like her her schedule potentially yeah interesting um okay so let's see rosemary soon learns that she is pregnant and guy strangely wants to share the news with the cast of vets before anybody else <laughs> yeah uh rosemary already has an obstetrician but the cast of vets convince her to go to their friend dr saperstein instead since he's one of the most renowned doctors in the city rosemary's first trimester is plagued by severe abdominal pains that dr saperstein insists will go away soon she also loses weight and her appearance becomes quite pale so at this point in the film, we can start to see that Rosemary is second guessing things. It seems like she's realizing she's only surrounded by the cast of vets 
and people that the Castavets know. Mm-hmm. So she decides to have a party with all of her and Guy's old friends. And her friends notice how horrible she looks and insist that she go see another doctor. Uh, her friend Hutch is also concerned and warns her again about the Bramford's dark past. Um, so, yeah, you, you kind of... Were you catching on here at this point a little bit, Ashvin? Like, it seems like you maybe don't remember the movie well enough to know for sure what's going on, but mm-hmm. you can see Guy and the cast of us being like, oh, your old friends? Why are they coming over? Oh, you don't need to have a party. Like, they're uh, really trying to orchestrate a, and interfere. Yeah. Uh, well, so the cast of it, they're not trying to prevent her from having the party. They're, she's just like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll come and I'll help you serve food and stuff. So to me, like the cast of it still feel like they're being very uh, helpful and like supportive, like this uh, neighbor that's just uh, really like wants to get involved in your life or like take you in. And we know that they've done that with others like Terry before. Uh, Guy, uh, I think you're right, is like being pretty dismissive of her as well as the doctor. And I, I thought like a lot of this is just like she is being minimized in this relationship uh, as this person who's carrying uh, a baby and is pregnant, her life is being dictated by all these others around her, which, you know, I, I think is could, could be a commentary on, uh, yeah, the w- women's place in society at that point, maybe, and, like, suddenly you feel like everyone else is running your life. So I'm still not convinced that something uh, sinister is afoot here. But, uh, yeah, w- what do you think? Okay. Uh, I just want to let everyone know, if there are any Satanists out there looking for a host for the demon seed... <laughs> Ashen's going to be totally clueless. So just... I mean, I'm going to look at both sides of it. Give you the benefit of the he doubt. Will, yeah, just... he's going to really give you the benefit of the doubt. You don't even have to be that careful. He's not even going to think it's weird that he's a pregnant man. Just Yeah, exactly. Anything's possible. Yeah, you don't you don't have to try that hard. Yeah, yeah just bring dessert over. I'm, I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i mean I, isn't that like what the, the point of this film is like uh everything everyone's doing is like like feels like very natural doesn't it i don't think it's the point of the film i mean yeah i mean part of the point of the film i hear what you're saying is commenting maybe on like women's place in society and maybe as part of the women's liberation movement like look at how much of a passenger she is in her own life right for sure but at the same time, as a viewer to a horror movie called Rosemary's Baby, <laughs> you, you got to start picking up on some of the clues or at least wondering what's going on. Yeah. But like you said, it could all be a psychological horror movie and she's exactly made it all up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think like, yeah, we, everyone knows how this movie ends, but... Uh, trying to see if uh if this is like a metaphor for something and like that this stuff that's happening to her right now is yeah more perceived in her head uh about uh the the process of being a pregnant woman in in like the 60s and how like yeah the doctor's like chiding her for like reading a book about pregnancy or something and her husband's like saying no we, we can't afford to go to another doctor and stuff so i feel like the reasons they're pushing back uh are grounded in maybe like like they feel realistic i guess for that sure, time. to a degree, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's believable that Rosemary... It has to be believable that Rosemary could be along for the ride or the movie kind of falls apart. So Right, right. It's believable from Rosemary's perspective. Yep, yep. Um. Okay, so Hutch warns her. Like, he's like, hey, you don't look good. This I know about Bramford's dark past. I'm concerned here. He calls her one day and insists on meeting her somewhere public so he can tell her something. Uh... And then she tells Guy about it. She says, Hutch wants to meet tomorrow at 11, and here's the place. And then when she tells Guy when and where this is going to happen, when and where this is going to happen, 
He goes, hey, you know what? I think I want to go get an ice cream cone <laughs> and gets up and leaves. Yeah. And and this is another J cut that has some significance, I think, because when he leaves, Rosemary's kind of fading off to sleep and we hear a faint sound of a doorbell. Right. And then the next scene is her ringing the doorbell at the Castavitz apartment, right? To right, like right. Tell them she's headed out. I can't remember yeah. what she tells them. So you think what you hear there is just the doorbell from the next scene. Yeah, right. But really, it's Guy yeah. going next door and ringing the doorbell of the Castavets to be like, hey, this guy Hutch is going to meet up with her yeah. at this time and place, and I need you to know about it so we can put a stop to this. Interesting. You, how do, you sure that was the doorbell? That was his It doorbell? was the exact same sound, just quieter in the mix. So... Yeah. I think it was a clever way to disguise and and get you into Rosemary's headspace. Like, oh, she's drifting off to sleep. It was maybe she just heard a doorbell in her dream. She doesn't know that that was real. Like, yeah, that's merging together with her ringing the doorbell the next day and her memory. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It's kind of taking you on the same psychological journey as Rosemary. Right. But right. to me, it to there's no reason to put that doorbell that early in the mix to have two J cuts like that that are <laughs> almost like the same transition with the same ominousness feels deliberate. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty smart. Yep. Going to get I, an ice cream cone. <laughs> that's a that's a thing. Who does uh again like <laughs> you can email podcast at horrormovieclub.com <laughs> title your email Demon Seed Inquiry. And we'll get make this sure, done. Yeah, yeah. Make sure to mention the ice cream cone. <laughs> clear criteria here yeah uh yeah 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 i guess that, that, that's a really good point uh yeah for some reason i really felt in the shoes of rosemary watching this i was i was, I was I, like it was just crazy to imagine her husband would be uh selling her out behind her back here yeah yeah it is it's it's tough yeah it's hard it's, it's um so let's see hutch never shows up um and she eventually learns that he suddenly fell into a coma so she is now filled with doubt and tries to insist the guy that she go see her original obstetrician, uh, and he starts arguing with her about it. But at the peak of the argument, her pain in her abdomen suddenly subsides, and she feels the baby move. This causes her to drop her desire to see a different doctor, and her pregnancy begins to go quite well to her great relief. Hey, uh, I, I really want to talk about her appearance, like uh, especially like in this first uh, part of the film, like how... It deteriorates. What do you think about that? Uh, yeah, it does deteriorate. I mean, she. It seems she actually lost weight for this part of the movie. She yeah. cuts her hair. Uh, you know, they do her makeup such that she looks very pale. Yeah, I thought that was really effective. Uh, yeah, you really see her like kind of like become pretty weak, and uh, yeah, you're really worried about her. Yeah, yeah, and I actually, um, you said you were pretty endeared to Rosemary towards the beginning of the movie. I thought her performance was like too over the top, like 1960s housewife, like, oh, yes, I would love to. It's just like, oh, my God, this is <laughs> too. But yeah. I think it's necessary as a contrast for these parts in the movie where she's like withering away or in like the grips of paranoia. Uh-huh. So it kind of all made sense. The performance made more sense as a whole than it did just watching the first half of the movie. 
I think so. And I, I think it's a comment on like women's role in like a relationship in the 60s, potentially. Like, yeah, right. she's like making a, a sandwich or a beer for him. Like when he comes home from work, she like just feels like very minimized in that relationship. She's all about like having a kid. Um, and so, yeah, to me, like, uh, it's like these, these, like she's suddenly pregnant and like the stuff is happening and like you're feeling for her because, uh, yeah, of the, of the position she's in and like the thoughts she's having, like they seem very natural, like given, uh, how, uh, how much like her life is controlled by others. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, so things start to go well. I assumed that her pain going away right as she was about to like really pull the plug on this thing is not a coincidence. Yeah, I'm really curious how that happens. Yeah, I, maybe a little, the demon inside was like, whoop. <laughs> Never mind. <I> better, <laughs> better stop that pinching I've been doing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a few months later, though, she gets a call informing her that Hutch has died um, and that before he died, he regained consciousness long enough to instruct someone to give Rosemary a book called All of Them Witches. He also passes a message along to her that the name is an anagram uh, based on her reading in this book, she deduces that Roman Castavet, the name of their neighbor, is an anagram for Stephen Marcato, the son of a former Branford resident and a reputed Satanist. So Dude, she's putting. Oh, go ahead. When, when they when he gave her that clue, I thought they were talking about Tannis being an anagram for Satan. That's exact. I had the exact same thought. Tannis is at least I've seen it spelled. I don't even know if it's a real thing, but I saw it spelled on Wikipedia as T A N N I S. But I thought. Maybe it's spelled T-A-N-A-S and Satan is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. I guess we are one A short. Yeah, that, that's what I thought they were going for that whole time. Those, those wild. Okay, so you thought the same thing. Cool. Yeah, I mean, it works if it's T-A-N-A-S, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I had the same thought. That's interesting. But, but Tannis isn't like a real root, I guess, is it? I don't know for sure, to tell you the truth. Okay. Okay. Um, so she's putting together the pieces that the Castavets and their friends have a coven that is plotting against her and her baby, even though... She doesn't quite know all the specifics. Uh, she founds out. She founds out. She <laughs> finds out that uh, <clears throat> guy stole the actor's tie who went blind, and she knows from her book that in order to like cast a spell on somebody, you need one of their belongings. She also finds out that uh, I think Hutch had one of his gloves go mi- missing. So she's starting to piece things together. She finds out that Doctor Saperstein keeps Tannis root on him mm-hmm. um, so she tries to talk to Guy about this with no success and she goes back to her original obstetrician behind his back she goes to see Dr. Hill and she tells him her entire theory and she is so pathetic here she's just unloading this entire crazy theory on him and to her relief at first he seems to take her seriously but she later despairs to discover that he has called her husband and her current obstetrician, Dr. Saperstein, who come take her home. And Dr. Saperstein tells her if she resists, he'll have to admit her to a mental hospital. Uh, So, yeah, based on everything so far, how convinced are you that uh, (laughs) something's... Because, I mean, this all seems like pretty, uh, you know, yeah, it seems pretty normal to me. But what do do you think? I'm going to be flooded with emails. (laughs) No, at this point, all signs are pointing to Coven. What do you you think is like the biggest red flag here? Everything. (laughs) (laughs) What isn't a red flag to you? Uh, Everything. (laughs) First off, like the the guy who like sends her a book. uh, I mean, yeah, he, what do we know about Hutch? He's actually like, he writes 
stories, right? He's a storyteller. I, th- I think they mentioned like he writes like kids' adventure stories or something. So is he a reliable uh, person to be giving her clues about witches? Um, hey, fuck you! Any children's <laughs> authors out there listening? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> we're not gonna believe anything. We can't you believe say. what you tell. Us. <laughs> yeah, go on, yeah. go on. Exactly. So, so yeah, I, I, I think that can be dismissed. Uh, I think the the response by the husband and the doctor and the way they show up. I mean, it is like a professional matter where like they're concerned about her and her mental health, and they're taking her back because like at this point she might be a danger to herself. So. Uh, I, I'm not seeing like the the big like disturbing thing here outside of like what we know from her narrative or like from her perspective. But y- you tell me like what, what do you think in this uh, encounter so far would have been like? Oh, uh, definitely witch. Yeah, I do. I even have to defend my side <laughs> of the argument. <laughs> yeah, because I I feel like you're, you're saying like it's like obvious here, right? That like there's a conspiracy against her. Yeah, I mean her. The last person who lived with them died under mysterious circumstances. They gave her the charm around her neck that she died wearing. Yeah, uh, but but she jumped and she left a suicide note, right? She left a note, but it was a mysterious circumstance. There's, I mean, there's so many things. There's a bureau in front of the closet door. There's the note I can no longer associate with. There's... Uh, her having that dream that she was pretty sure was real. There's him going to say he wants an ice cream cone. <laughs> <laughs> the ice cream cone. I, I feel like, yeah, I mean, what you're saying, it's, it's all true, but I, I think you got to pull yourself out of the context that you're in a horror movie for a minute. And then, like, if you just think about it as real day of a woman a woman who's going through pregnancy, like, isn't this all, all this kind of stuff is kind of normal, isn't it? I mean, that's I guess that's the thing. And her doctor is like, throw away all your books. I'm going to prescribe a drink that I'll have your neighbor make for you because I'm friends with her. <laughs> it's okay. like, okay, <laughs> that's that's starting to feel a little bit weird. And yeah. then all her friends come and are like, this is fucked up. Like, what are you doing? Mm. Yeah, um, but then the pain but stops. But even there. having your husband in their corner is pretty surprising. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, the husband feels like he's in, yeah, yeah. Like I, to, I, you, you know, if he was suspicious, it might be easier for her to be like, yeah, this is messed up. But right. he's, you know, he's on their side. I, I never saw him as like being on their side versus just trying to like calm her down and like gaslight her basically. And, uh, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I, I like, I just thought it was like so well balanced. And, uh, and I, I think it's a testament to like how well this was directed. The story was told where, uh, yeah, for, from my perspective, like we have a narrator, a, a character that we're, uh, following, but we, uh, we don't know how much to trust of like what she is going through or thinking compared to like yeah there's a lot of like common sense coming from some of these other characters like are you maybe you're overreacting or maybe you shouldn't be taking advice from a guy who like tells stories or like so what if this guy is the uh, grandchild or, or child of like a, a witch person like that that's okay uh so i, I don't know yeah I'm, I'm still like on the fence here i think it, in your defense there was a note i made while watching like i don't know if i caught all of these clues the first time i watched this yeah um, but yeah. Because anyway, I, I, I don't we think could... that. Yeah, I, I don't think there are clues. I, I think this is just like normal life. I, I, I don't know if they're like uh, trying to like. Uh, yeah, I mean they're calling out clues, but I, I think they're by doubtful or like there's a lot of reason to doubt those clues. I guess. Okay. 
All right. Well, I'm just going to move on for the sake right. yeah. <laughs> of this time. <laughs> oh, also, the, the irony here, uh, do you, I, I find it interesting that, um, you know, we've covered like witch films and usually when we talk about witches, it's a bunch of men criticizing women for being witches and killing them. I thought it was really cool here that like it's the opposite here where it's a, a woman calling out uh, a, a group of people as being into witchcraft or witches. Yeah. Right. True. Interesting. Yeah. Cool dynamic switch. Okay, so she's back at the apartment. They've taken her back home, and Dr. Saperstein sedates her. And when she wakes, she discovers that she has given birth while she was out of it. She's told the baby was a stillborn, and Guy's explaining her condition before, saying it's called prepartum. Like, you you had the prepartum crazies, is what he tells her. Uh, again, you know, the gaslighting and the commentaries on the time. As the Castavets and their friends help Rosemary recover, she becomes suspicious when she realizes that her caregivers are saving her breast milk instead of disposing of it after she pumps. She stops taking the pills they're giving her because she's because of the suspicion. And as a result, she becomes a little less out of it, a bit more aware of what's going on. And she then notices the sound of a baby crying, which Guy insists is some new neighbors that have a baby. She is not satisfied with that explanation, and she now remembers the bureau that was in front of the closet before they moved, and she discovers a secret passageway in that closet between her apartment and the Castavits. She sneaks into their apartment to discover all of their friends surrounding a black bassinet where a baby lies beneath an upside-down cross. Uh, We also notice in the scene that there are a bunch of satanic paintings hung on the walls, which was foreshadowed earlier when she noticed their pictures were missing Uh, when she first entered their apartment in the first act. She sees the baby and cries out, His eyes! What have you done to his eyes? And Roman responds, He has his father's eyes. (laughs) To which I thought this line was hilarious. She goes, What are you talking about? Guy's eyes are normal. (laughs) He has normal eyes. (laughs) And Roman responds that the boy named Adrian is the son of Satan himself. Guy tries to comfort Rosemary by telling her, They can have another child, and now they have a leg up because, in return, the coven has helped his career, like, given them so much, and she spits in his face. And upon hearing the boy cry, uh, one of the friends is trying to comfort him by rocking his cradle way too hard, and Rosemary goes over to him and begins to soothe him as the coven watches on. Like, this is a truly special moment for them as she's, you know, being his mother. There's a point before this where... Roman's like trying to talk reason into her and she's like are you trying to get me to be his mother and he goes aren't you his mother and I feel like that in this scene you can kind of see like what he said if not clicking to her clicking to the audience too like oh well this is her son like and a mother's instinct is a powerful thing so the movie ends with her presumably mothering this child and soothing him I guess guess that was the red flag probably the eyes uh, for the this eyes. whole thing? <laughs> yeah. Maybe what, what she dreamed actually happened. <laughs> <That was laughs> You're finally convinced. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, those, those uh, yeah, I, I, that, the final scene, I, I guess, like, yeah, put, puts the nail in the coffin on, on what happened here. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I just, there's always something I just cannot predict every time we record. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah I I think that's like the strength of this film is like uh, throughout you're questioning uh, what she's going through and like she's rightfully questioning it, 
um, but you're so convinced by the responses that that her husband's giving or the doctor's given uh, that like part of you wants to believe them. And then, yeah, I think this final scene, though, uh, erases all that, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's made pretty clear that that what everything that happened, Guy was in on it. You can even kind of pinpoint the scene where Roman proposed the whole thing to Guy, I believe. Like there's a scene. Yeah, that when they first go over to their apartment for dinner, there's a scene where Minnie and Rosemary are alone. And then they're kind of looking like, oh, where are the guys at? And you see just some smoke coming up from near the couch. Yeah. And then when they come onto the scene, Guy is looking like he's pondering something. Interesting. And I have a feeling that was when the proposal was made, or at least a hint of what the proposal could entail. I, th- I think you're right, yeah. that's Because uh, yeah, pr- pretty soon after that, the he gets the part that he didn't get before. So yeah. like, his luck suddenly starts to change after that dinner. Yeah, from that point on, everything... Every everything guy says and does is all a part of the conspiracy to get Rosemary pregnant, presumably on a specific date, with the child of Satan. All for, and all I, for his career. What's that? All for his career. All for his career. He sold his soul to the devil for success, essentially, or Damn. his the soul of his family and his wife. Yeah, he sold his wife's womb to the devil. Yeah, I, I do think, like you said, though, the way you're interpreting the story does make sense and I think is intended to be kind of read that way, especially probably a lot of viewers in 1968. Yep. Watching this without knowing anything about it felt that way because I do think it's a commentary on the lack of agency. Yeah. Uh, by um, perhaps an average woman in a 1960s household. I mean, this was a time where the women's liberation movement was... Mm-hmm. rising up along with the civil rights movement and yeah 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 i think it has a lot to say though a woman's like a uh, right or control over her own body versus like all these other people making decisions for her the husband basically selling her body to uh yeah the devil to to advance his career um like doctors dr hill's response like uh i mean i i feel like dr hill is like a resemblance of or he he is a stand-in for the audience potentially like you have this woman come to you telling her like that there's all these people against her and coming after her there's like this big conspiracy like uh you i don't know like do you think what he did was fair there or do you, do you think he should have done something different yeah i mean that's tough because had she just come to him and said, I'm concerned that my doctor isn't giving me the appropriate care. He's got my neighbor making a drink for me and told me not to take any of the prenatal stuff. Like then he might've been like, whoa, 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 like not cool. Mm-hmm. You're my patient again now. But to spill all the beans and say that there's this witchcraft coven that's out to get her in the 1960s. Yeah. When like hysteria was, I believe it was like a documented psychological condition that only happened to women. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's not necessarily that surprising. So in your defense, I do think it's the movie is structured that way. I also think you could look at Dr. Saperstein representing Western medicine. And there was a bit of a push around this time, like the home birth movement really started kicking, kicking into gear in the early 70s. So I think there were inklings, I would guess there were at least rumblings around this time of women like wanting to like take more control of how childbirth went and not necessarily listen to everything the doctors told you. 
Yep. Or at least arm yourself with information, like with these books, to know like what questions to ask or right. understand right. what's happening. Yep. And then to him just be like, nope, I'm the doctor and this is what I say goes. And her husband be like, no, you listen to the doctor. Exactly. We can't disappoint the doctor. Exactly. Right. And she, yeah. at some point she even says, I think, I can't remember if it was, maybe she was giving birth like shortly after sedate, being sedated or she was starting to go into labor or something. She was cognizant enough at one point to say like, no, this was supposed to happen in a like in nice, hospital. clean uh, sterile hospital or something to that effect. Right. And right. that was such a specific comment about hospitals. I couldn't help but wonder if maybe they're, that was a commentary on how people were starting to feel about home, home births as an yeah. alternative. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't know that came out around that time. Yeah. I saw like a, a really, like a institute for home birth established in 1971. So I'm just kind of, estimating that maybe in 1967 when the book was written or 68 when the movie was made like maybe there were rumblings about it in society mm-hmm. already got it even if nothing formal existed speaking about rumblings in society um so today we know about like postpartum depression right which is like you have a kid and then you're down um was that coming up around that time? And like, could this movie be a metaphor for a mother's experience? Like, a, yeah, having a child for the first time and maybe not uh, thinking their child, uh, not seeing their child in the best of lights. Right. Kind of like rejecting the child a little bit at first. Right. Yeah. It's it's possible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I think there are a lot of like complex uh, themes at play here. For sure. There's so many themes to pick apart and it's interesting too to pick apart like or look at how the theme of religious decline if you want to I don't know that that's really where these stories all came from it's just weird that they all happened around the same time or perhaps the rise of Satanism whatever like weaving a story about that into a story about like women's roles in society is just a really cool way to comment on things but also just telling a really original well-structured story for sure yeah it's such a cool intersection of yeah timepiece of capturing what's happening at that time and the story itself i mean it has a lot of accolades you know it it was nominated for best adapted screenplay i know Mm -hmm. i have a quote somewhere that i won't bother finding about stephen king talking about ira levin and how incredibly he plots like all his stories are so incredibly well plotted and i feel like you do see that here and you talk about the pace in older movies, you mentioned something about it earlier. This is a bit of a longer movie. I don't necessarily think it drags, but it kind of organically unfolds. She doesn't even get pregnant until an hour into the movie. Right. But it doesn't feel as slow as I. it would seem, just knowing that fact. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Isn't that crazy? Uh, yeah. It's a feat, and uh, it, it feels like so underproduced in some ways. Like you have a lot of long shots a lot of dialogue, not a lot of music, uh, not a lot of action happening. But yeah, for some reason, it, it, the runtime like doesn't feel like too long or, or dragging at all. I agree. I agree. And yeah, it is pretty sparse as far as some of the sound goes. But the music is great, by the way. Um, that was done by, oh boy, Krzysztof Kometa, a Polish composer and jazz pianist who also scored films and um, had worked with Polanski in the past. So pretty unsettling stuff. It's an unsettling score. I think you can even see little pieces of it in some modern 
scores. There was even a moment where I was like, that sounds exactly like oh, no a kidding. snippet of the It Follows score. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Uh, not that it was lifted or anything, but I just couldn't help but wonder if they were if Disaster Piece was influenced in a way. Mm, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. What do you think of this movie? I mean, we're kind of saying it right now, but... Uh, I, I was blown away, man. Like, uh, yeah, it felt like a first watch to me. And for that reason, like, I felt like throughout it balanced the idea of, um, yeah, is this woman really, uh, giving birth to the devil or is this like a comment on the experience of being pregnant in the sixties and, uh, how the struggles are, uh, in like the lack of agency during that time. Um, so I, I thought it did a really good job balancing those and something about this, like, uh, it's just really creepy and scary. Like if what we saw is true and that was the husband selling her out, like that is like so gross and creepy. Um, the, so, so yeah, the, the idea of it like really scares me. And then, uh, the, those shots of the devil and like the eyes, like, I mean, you know, like not obviously like the highest production or whatever, but I, I you know, I think, I think they work in the context of the film where they're not like relying on that kind of stuff to scare you there. It's more like a conceptual scare, which I think, uh, works pretty effectively. So I, I was impressed. I thought Mia Farrow did like an amazing job here. Uh, but yeah, what, what did you think? You're right. We see so little of, of the things we see in most horror movies, Yeah, but it is no less scary because of it. It really is structured like a psychological horror movie and it, right. it makes it very unsettling. And yeah, Mia Farrow's performance, I think is a big part of why it's so unsettling. I did, it did really click for me once she's especially when she's just so pathetic in Dr. Hill's office. And she has a quote where she, he's like, wait in this room. Like, and then he leaves and she's talking to her baby and she says, everything's going to be okay now, Andy or Jenny. God bless Dr. Hill. And it's just like, oh my God, this is so (laughs) pathetic. So her performance like really comes full circle and yeah, her vulnerability and paranoia and panic I feel bad calling it paranoia because it's justified paranoia, but yeah, it's a great performance. And then Sydney Blackmore as Roman did a great job, I thought. Um, so did Ruth Gordon. Obviously, she won the Oscar. They were perfectly cast too. They were just great. They were, yeah, pretty believable neighbors. Yep. And yeah, direction, cinematography type stuff was awesome too. The dream sequences, just really interesting. Again, it. I feel like I don't know if maybe it's more of a modern cinema thing, but. It's so simple and common to just put like a dissolve transition into the part where the dream sequence begins. But right. she kind of just like looks off camera and then like, oh, the, the dream is like <laughs> the unfolding right and meshing into like it seemed like it may have existed on the same set. Like, right. It was just really cool. Yeah. Um, and that that was a good way to work in some of like her Catholic background and give her a bit of a character arc like hinting at what i'm sure was developed more in the book but that they couldn't have the time to do in this movie i yeah i thought that was really cool i i kept thinking they're gonna circle back on that or that's gonna come to play or we're gonna see like something terrible that happened but the way they just like randomly reference it and like just like very quick snippets of like an experience that she had uh and the feeling you got from it without like telling you like what exactly happened uh was was effective wasn't it like yeah, that worked it really was for sure um, and yeah, just like there were some s- pre steadicam shots where I'm just like, I don't know how they even did that. Like there were clearly dolly shots, but it was just like, I don't know where the track is for the, it, it was, 
there was a lot of stuff I was kind of marveling at, but at the like, same time, yeah, it wasn't particularly showy, you know. Right. It, it wasn't in your face with the cinematography, and it just all perfectly served the movie. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it never like took away from like the story or like what was happening. Uh, like you talking about like those long scenes. I feel, I feel like there's one like where someone's on a phone in the bedroom and you're like you're staring at the bedroom door from like uh, far away and then like the camera kind of moves and you can see the person on the phone. There was it was I can't remember the exact scene, but I think Roman, Minnie, and Guy all walk into the apartment at the same time and they're just like coming towards the camera and the camera is moving backwards and they all like walk down the hallway oh, and it's just like yeah. very seamlessly like cameras pulling back and I'm just I don't know how they're doing this without a steady cam and sure it, it was just really cool yeah yeah really great cool. yeah um yeah music was great I don't know man I I have perhaps nothing better to like nothing bad to say about it I'm struggling too, man. Like, yeah, this is a hard movie to like find fault in. Like, uh, every angle of it was pretty good. Um, from a logic perspective, uh, so do you believe um, the previous tenant in their place was put in a coma by Roman and Minnie, or the, the the coven? I think that might have been unrelated. Like, she just Did died it? of old age, but. At the same time, maybe not. Like, she was saying she couldn't associate with them anymore. She had blocked right. off the passageway. So, yeah, maybe they had her off because she could, you know, if she strays from the pack, she could tell yeah. somebody about them. I think so. And I then, think she knew something was up. Right, yeah. and yep. Or she was a member of the coven and then became disgruntled. Yeah, right. Um, and then and Terry, then, presumably, Terry, yeah. was maybe they thought would be a vessel. <laughs> and she didn't pan out. And yeah, it didn't work out. So and they so they just, just got like rid of her. Their debt. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, no, I I feel the same way, man. I I don't know what to like uh, what to criticize about this movie. It's, it's, it's I think really... the the easiest criticism to throw out there would be that it's like a little long and slow, but I don't think so. Like I flirted with thinking that, but then I was like, no, I, I don't think I'd change anything. <laughs> I was pretty engrossed the whole time. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, I was too. These people are really nice. I don't know what's her, what her problem is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Guy is so frustrating. There's like two or three times in the movie where he's just like, hey, it's my fault. I've been selfish, but I'm going to do better. Just bear with me, huh? I'm, like, yeah. <laughs> oh, you're so eye-rolling. You've been a dick for like three months, and you're just like, don't yeah. worry, babe. Everything's going to be better now. That's true. I, f- I feel like he never like listened to her, but it just seemed like so realistic for like a guy uh, at that time potentially to be doing that. Right. Uh, yeah, agreed. And then, yeah, you, you were fine with, like, the depictions, the effects. Uh, the, the, the the title song in the outro was Mia Firo singing, uh, which I, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, nice touch. Yeah, nice touch there. What did you think of the role of the city? Like, this takes place in New York City. Like, do you feel like that added a lot to the story? No, I think there was enough going on that we didn't need it to. Okay. I wasn't called Rosemary Takes Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know something about this and like even the omen like i, I know like there's a, a focus on like the devil's baby being born in a place of influence right um because the omen what he's being born in like a nation a capital somewhere right i think the, like it's the thing is just like he's supposed to be born to a politician or into the world of government yeah into the it. world of politics i think is something from the, the bible 
Okay. I don't know if it actually exists in the Bible, but I think it exists within the omen in the Bible. Got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I thought the vibe of New York City was was a cool added thing. So it it gave the the setting a, a nice touch with like the the apartment setup. Uh, when she would like go out to like the Times Square, not Times Square, but like uh, where did she go? Like Fifth Avenue or something. Um, it's just cool to see like this horror like playing out in a city. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cosmopolitan horror has a an interesting feel to it. Yeah, some gothic vibes going on with the architecture. Yeah, a little bit for sure. Right. Uh, a little reminiscent of some like Italian horror stuff too, because that often takes place in cities with like, oh yeah, gothic or baroque architecture all around in like Argento's films. Right. Right. Yep. Good call. All right, man. Well, zero out of five subpar chocolate desserts. What do you give this movie? <laughs> uh, I give it five subpar chocolate desserts. I, I do think like this is one of the best horror films out there, and uh, a lot of the brilliance of it is the direction and the balance of the psychological elements, as well as suddenly like the the the, the, the like the final scene, which brings in like the 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 creepiness of what exactly happened and in awesome performances for sure. So, uh, yeah, I, I think this is a classic and it deserves to be up there. What about you? I agree, man. Like stellar direction, cinematography, music and performances. They just all allow the plot to unfold beautifully. And every piece of the production does what it needs to, to take us on this journey with Rosemary into madness. Right. You were right there with her clearly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I agree. <laughs> five out of five. It's, it deserves all its acclaim. It's, incredible yeah it is it is hey one last question for you what would you think of this movie if we didn't have that final scene where she finds the uh the baby she gave birth to i think it would be frustrating i think oh. I, yeah. as much as i like open-ended no i don't like open-ended movies endings I, i'm i feel like i'm on the record not being straight against it but not having it be my favorite mm. i think after this long of a journey and this detail of a plot that was all strategically put into place. Yeah. You got to show it. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think I agree. I agree. I like the whole movie. I was kind of like hoping it's going to like, you know, play to like both sides of like what could have happened. But I think you're right. Given like how long it is and how slow it is, you do need that like card to play at the end. So yeah, yeah I agree. For sure. Um, anything else, man? A rare f- combined five out of five from us. Yeah, I know. No, nothing else for me. It was a fun one to revisit. All right, cool. All right, well, I guess that's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode on Rosemary's Baby, everybody. Uh, If you did, you can go give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or if you want to support the show financially and get some bonus content, you can go to horrormovieclub.com and click on the big orange button to become a patron for a dollar a month. While you're there, you can also click on the social links drop down to find links to Twitter and Facebook. We're also on Instagram. And that's where we tell you what show we're going to be covering next week. New shows come out every Wednesday. Uh, Let's see. You can, I think that's all the things. Our our art is done by Amy May Popart. You can check her out on Etsy.com. You could just Google Horror Movie Club Coaster Set, and that'll take you to her Etsy page and a coaster set with our logo, logo on it. That you could buy if you feel so inclined and i think that's it so until next time um if you want ashwin to be a vessel for anything you <laughs> that social links drop down is there uh i i feel those requests but i'll uh you know i'll be a non-partisan bystander or i can be the guy to his rosemary yeah. 
You can be very convincing. <laughs> <laughs> Eat your moose and do what the doctor says. Yeah. <laughs>